Hello everyone, before I start, if you'll forgive me, I have a podcast recommendation for you all. It's called the British Food History Podcast. I recommend it to you on the rigorous selection process that I really like it, and maybe you will too. Also, it's a great and rich subject. Most of all, though, I really like the host, who is Dr Neil Buttery, and he really knows what he's talking about. He's an author, a PhD in the subject, he's got a really good blog as well, actually. But the main thing is he's an absolute and total enthusiast, and that, to me, is the heart of independent podcasting. He's doing it because he loves his subject primarily. He's a warm and lovely host. He has lots of really great guests. So Diane Perkis of The People's History of the Civil War fame, she was there, for example. She's now done The People's History Approach to Food. There's one just out on medieval food and one I absolutely loved on school meals. How I laughed at that one and cried just a little bit at the memory of the tubes in school liver. So much yuck. Anyway, it's great. Give it a go on your normal podcatcher, the British Food History Podcast with Dr. Neil Buttery. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 379 the king's party now i have to admit last week was a bit of an indulgence and i'm sitting here wearing white and carrying the candle of contrition i am heartily sorry i just have a bit of a patch for the protestation such an extraordinary thing nation building attempt to build a sense of unity this week though we're going to see that while the protestation was hugely successful at engaging communities in a shared desire for unity and peace, in practice, the battle lines now were becoming more clearly drawn and therefore much harder to bridge. So this time, we're going to hear how Charles began to build an opposition to the junto in Parliament. Now, I remember when I was a lad, we went to the seaside on holiday and we went to a tidal estuary. There was lots of sand and there was lots of mud, to be honest. A lot of mud. Anyway, there was this exciting, uncertain time at the top of the flood tide when the waters in the river became uncertain. Lots of eddies and ripples, one way, then the other. The river was no longer sure whether it was coming or going in flood or in ebb. The turning of the tide, as it were. And that's what's happening now politically in England. The current no longer quite knows which way it's going. Surely, some thought, 
Surely the flood had gone on long enough now. Now it was time to stop. And Charles, to give the lad his due, was wise to this. He knew this was an opportunity to build a party. Build it and they will come, said Charles, thereby sparking an idea for a film in a few hundred years' time. The idea of achieving consensus and unity in Parliament, that was gone now, that was dead. Charles would rather eat his liver than deal with Strafford's murderers and the architects of his shame. They must be politically defeated and then, when defeated politically, crushed and punished. To do that, there must be a royalist party to defeat the reformers in their own backyard. Charles must storm Parliament. Just to say the obvious, it is worth saying that although Charles will prove rather good at this, building a party, this strategy is a sure sign of failure and weakness, not a sign of strength. The secret of royal success through the centuries had always been to stand above faction, not to be forced to become one, to get involved in one. Even in the faction-ridden court of Henry VIII, Henry was never part of a faction, he stood above them all and watched them fight it out. Charles getting his hands dirty in the parliamentary faction building was another failure of kingship. Charles was building a new set of ramparts behind the ruins of the old one, Strafford's Wall, which had fallen into the reformers' hands. This last battle would be fought on three issues. Let's go for an acronym, shall we? BAM, B-A-M, as in, you know, wham. So B is for bishops, to be or not to be. A is for army, to have or to hold. M is for ministers. Who picks the team? Bam! Education is such a great thing, isn't it? So look, bishops then. Let me re-emphasise a point I'm sure we've made before, because this will be a red-hot ground of battle between the king and the reformers, and the cry of, No bishops! will echo around London and the country at large. So, Bishops played a religious role, of course, a religious role in imposing a specific view of worship, and of course, that imposed what many believed was a betrayal of the Elizabethan Calvinist church through the Arminianism. But they were also of crucial political importance. For one, they were the royal foot soldiers promoting absolutism from England's pulpits, and they were an ultra-royalist voting bloc in the House of Lords as well. So for radical reformers, bishops must be removed completely. For the more moderate reformers, their political and secular power must be removed, even if their religious office survived, and that needed to be tied back to Calvinism anyway. OK, Alice Clark, political and religious. To reformers, bishops were a central part of Charles's so-called tyranny. While he'd been in Scotland, Charles heard about the progress of the Root and Branch Bill, and worried that it would succeed and delete bishops. As a result, he instructed his Secretary of State, Edward Nicholas, to assure all my servants that I am constant for the doctrine and discipline of the Church of England as it was established by Queen Elizabeth and my father, and resolve, by the grace of God, to live and die in the maintenance. Charles would never accept the destruction of the bishops in England. The Junto were aware not only of Charles's firmness of view, but that many in England agreed with him. So they needed to keep the Scots happy, though, and the Scots wanted them gone as proof of English commitment to the Kirk. So the Junto 
now had to walk a very fine line, convince the Scots they were on it, but hold their hand from the bishops so as not to lose support of the Anglicans in England. A tightrope indeed. Secondly, army, control of the military. Now, the army in York was finally disbanded, so that's cool. Phew, gone. But there was still control of the militia of the trained bands at issue. No one trusted the king anymore. No one trusted an untrustworthy king to have control of the military that could become the sword of fire, vengeance and perdition, as it were. But the king had always been the country's military leader since, well, Pender or Dot. Charles was never going to let that go without a fight. It would make him a cipher, a naught, a zero. The coil would have been off-shuffled. Finally then, the right to appoint ministers. Forever it had been a problem when a royal council had gained power and was not aligned with the community of the realm, Piers Gaviscon, just for example, and so on. But the right of the king to appoint those ministers had never been questioned. Now it was being questioned. The ministers were also the king's sword and the junto no longer trusted the king with anything more than a cheese knife. So it was proposed, nay demanded, that Parliament must have a role in choosing the King's ministers, so that a new Strafford could never happen again, nor a new Piers Gaveston, for that matter, to threaten the peace of the Commonwealth. Now, when warned of this, Charles was again very clear. He instructed Nicholas to advise with some of my best servants there how this may be prevented, for I assure you, I do not mean to grant it. Bam! Ramparts, battlements, red lines, non-negotiables. Charles as Gandalf on the bridge of Khazad de Doom. Oh, shall not pass! And we know how that ended. Pym walked the tightrope walk of the bishops. Now, for Pym himself, religious form was a deeply held personal belief. But he knew that political necessity dictated that the root and branch bill could not, this time, succeed. Destruction of the bishops would be destruction of unity for reform in the commons. But they must show the Scots that they were proceeding to reform religion, that they were getting there. So, while stalling on root and branch, the junto had ordinances passed. They authorised church wardens to remove altar rails initially, without warrant of law. But on the 8th of September, they went further. They demanded, with authority of law now, despite the king's absence, that church wardens should remove crucifixes, images of the Trinity, that there was to be no bowing at the name of Jesus anymore, and the Sabbath must be strictly maintained. But for many in Parliament, even this was too far. Storm clouds gathered. The lords could not accept this. Certainly they could not accept it while the king was away in Scotland without the king's approval. The majority of the House of Lords were in any way well in favour of bishops and the Anglican Church, and so they refused to approve this ordinance from the Commons. Pym grimly held his line. He persuaded the Commons to print their declaration anyway, as though it had force of law. For the first time, Commons and Lords were now disunited. Charles would rub his hands with glee and take full advantage. This disunity in Parliament reflected disunity in the country. In many places, the religious ordinances were adhered to with glee. Altar rails were indeed ripped up, images smashed and removed, including 
some rather nice stained glass. In Walbrook, the minister talked about a riotous rout where parishioners battered down a stained glass window despite the fact that the local glazier had offered to take it down and pay a fair price for it. It's a sort of fever. The widespread iconoclasm that gets blamed on Cromwell and his soldiers started a year before the war starts and far longer before Cromwell gets near power. But in many other places, none of this happened. So in London, which is the most puritanically-minded city in the country, 29 of 85 parishes make some sort of change. A substantial amount, but it meant two-thirds did no such thing. In significant numbers of places, laity as well as ministers objected. Let me take you to Kidderminster, which I've always associated with carpets rather than religious riots, I have to say. The church wardens tried to enforce the declarations, but to the local Puritan writer Richard Baxter's horror, a crew of then drunken, riotous party of the town, poor journeymen and servants, took the alarm and with weapons defend the crucifix and the church's images. It might be a good idea, just an example, to give you a flavour of what things are like in some parts of the country, to talk about the Harleys of Herefordshire again. I think I've introduced them to you before. Brilliana and Robert Harley were owners of Brampton Bryant. Robert Harley was an MP, and so very much in London, while Brilliana was at home managing the estate and family. Both of them were very much part of the Calvinist and Puritan party. Brilliana once wrote in her commonplace book that man cannot move God's will once to goodness. It is God that first turns our will to that which is good. She believed fully in the idea of the elect. Unlike most Puritans, suffered agonies about whether or not they were saved. Her letters include, for example, the agonies of one of her servants, Bletchley, who decided that she was not saved and... Has these two days been in grievous distress and is in grievous agony of conscience and despair? She says she will be damned. Brilliana's writing to her family and relatives kept her connected with events in London and she passed news on to her friends in turn. Thus the network of news spread throughout the country. Though often her letters were more about personal family worries rather than religious politics, There's a rather nice letter to her son Ned, who was off to Oxford University for the first time, worrying that, Now I fear you will both see and hear men of nobility and excellent parts of nature abandon themselves to swearing and that odious sin of drunkenness. And who's to say she was wrong? Well, ladies and gentlemen, speaking as a man of excellent parts of nature, I can confirm it can happen. It also seems there was a stream of food flowing along the roads from Brampton Bryan to Oxford and London. So, for example, she wrote to Ned again, I have sent your father a snipe pie and teal pie and a collar of brawn, or else I had sent you something this week. Wish my folks had sent me the odd pie. Maybe not a collar of brawn, though. Anyway, I digress. More immediately, though, through this network, news reached her when the Court of High Commission was abolished and she was delighted. In March 1641, she wrote happily, I'm glad the bishops begin to fall, and I will hope it will be with them as it was with Haman. When he began to fall, he fell indeed. And she was delighted at Strafford's fall, reflected that he died like a Seneca, but not like one who had tasted the mystery of godliness. 
also delighted was their local vicar, whose appointment they'd secured with their influence. And he was therefore duly Calvinist in tone, just like them. Since 1634, he'd fought against the Laudian reforms and forced his parishioners not to comply. And so in September, Robert Harley came home with news of the religious declarations of the commons, and he set about purifying the church at Brampton Bryant and soon the surrounding villages. At Lentwarden, he broke the windows and smashed the glass with a hammer, throwing the glass into the River Tame, celebrating that he was imitating King Asa, who threw images into the brook Kidron. Trouble is, they were rather outliers in their area in Herefordshire. A lot of the locals watching all of this absolutely hated it. I imagine you are at home yourselves, shuddering at the thought of all that beautiful art being so randomly destroyed. And also, I have to say, with more than a hint of the litterbug. What was with glass being chucked into the river for crying aloud? I hope no one cut their feet swimming. I can see a new book along the history they're trying to keep from you lying. Anyway, the vicar reported that the vulgar comfort themselves with assured confidences that the bishops will get up again. Brilliana and her family prayed and expected that Parliament was in the right and would prevail and that peace and harmony would be restored eventually. Brilliana wrote, The Lord in his mercy make them one and in his good time incline the king to be fully assured in the faithful counsel of Parliament. But as another son, Thomas Harley, wrote to Ned Harley, others in the area were not so supportive of Parliament as the Harleys were. Some men jeer and cast forth reproachful words against the Parliament, and others that might forward the work of Parliament are very backward. In summary, religion was dividing the country as it was beginning to divide Parliament. To Puritans and anti-Laudians, it was a triumphant resurgence of the old ways, bursting back into the light, pushing back the fear that they were to be engulfed by a revolution of popery, that they were saved from the darkness. The Puritan poet John Bond crowed, Papists tremble, Arminians tumble. But others were horrified at the chaos and riots. The madness is intolerable, wrote one. They feared that this religious chaos was just one aspect of rising social disorder and the many-headed beast. We must take care that the common people may not carve out a justice by their multitudes. Of this we have too frequent experience by their breaking down enclosures and raising other tumult to an ill purpose. John Pym during the summer and autumn 1641 was at the height of his dominance and control. He had managed Parliament with authority and enormous skill, steering through a massively significant programme of reform. And yet, as MPs began to return from the summer recess of Parliament, he received a parcel brought to him by a porter in Parliament. Curious, Pym opened the package, and out fell not a letter or a petition, but an abominable rag, full of filthy, abominable matter. There was a bit of paper with it. Mr Pym, do not think that a guard of men can protect you if you persist in your traitorous courses and wicked designs. I have sent a paper messenger to you, and if this does not touch your heart, a dagger shall. So soon as I am recovered of my plague sore... In the meantime, you may be foreborn, because no better man may be endangered for you. Repent, traitor. Well, that's not very nice. The rag had been the dressing for plague sores. Yuck. The thing is, 
the PIM had now become very unpopular. Many backbenchers were beginning to resent the high-handed tactics of the junto. They were feeling corralled. The chaos around religion, as we've seen, was placing the wind up various parts of the national anatomy where it shouldn't be. And the junto's efforts to walk the line between keeping the Scots on board, not scaring the traditional church, was not being entirely successful. They were widely suspected of being in cahoots with the radical Puritans in the city, and libels appeared, printed and scattered throughout the city, accusing Pym of just going too far, of setting himself up above the king, of pride, of chaos. Pym was King Pym, and that rogue would set all the kingdoms by the ears. Many people were beginning to think that the Junto were just being paranoid about the king. Now, the Junto were very probably right, actually, in their belief that Charles was essentially untrustworthy and was now looking for a way to defeat the cause of reform, not work with it, and that a settlement could only work if the king was bound in a sevenfold fence, stiff with hoops and armed with ribs of whale, like a corset. But around them, others were weary. They wanted an end to this. And there was more. The poll tax levied to pay off the Scots army had seriously miffed people, since everyone had to pay the same, except those receiving poor relief. The Venetian ambassador noted the mood. Parliament is losing great credit, which it once enjoyed universally, since it appears that instead of bringing relief, it has imposed expenses and burdens on the public. Here was a Parliament that was supposed to be putting things right, and all we've got is a pain in the wallet. This is a theme that we will hear again. The chaos over religion and the mushrooming of religious groups, as we've said, was seriously worrying moderates and conservatives now, but there was more chaos than that. Nicholas had been confident that the removal of the Scots army would hit the cause of reform hard. Those that have depended on them will fall flat, he wrote. But he didn't anticipate the impact of disbanding the English army. So London was increasingly flooded now with out-of-work, out-of-pocket soldiers. They became known as reformados. This is an older word, or so it struck me, and I find out that it's a borrowing from Spanish, where there's a word for an officer who'd been left without a command due to a reorganisation or a reform, as you might say. So, of course, the English borrowed it, slightly misused it, because that's what we do. On the Happy Bunny scale, the ref reformados scored very low indeed, and they blamed Parliament and the members of the Junto for their pain. They were very, very royalist in orientation. Nervously, a substantial guard was placed on both Houses of Parliament for fear of a riot. And the discontent now extended right into the city, the city which had been such a stalwart for the reformers. The tide was changing, the waters were uncertain. Edward Nicholas spotted this, and he wrote to Charles, I am credibly assured that the City of London grows very weary of the insolent carriage of the schismatics. All of this was important. It began to be very possible now to make an argument for the King as defender of law and order, as the defender of the Elizabethan Church. Nicholas and Charles set about using this opportunity. On the advice of Henrietta Maria as well as the King, Edward Nicholas started with what I might once have called low-hanging fruit, in a frankly tawdry effort to win hearts and minds amongst those around me in the business meeting, trying to complete the cards of bullshit bingo they were all hiding, I might also have explained there was no point in trying to push water uphill, that in strategic terms we needed to focus on the knitting rather than extending the envelope. 
Such was once the way to win friends and influence people. Anyway, I digress again. Nicholas focused first on the House of Lords, where Pym's support was the weakest and support for the Church of England the strongest. He and Henrietta Maria identified two groups, a dozen disaffected lay peers and an equal number of bishops. He wrote to the peers on behalf of the king, and the letter implored them to keep the communication secret. Nicholas, Henrietta Maria and Charles were building their party. Charles was conscious he needed also to give them confidence, a sign that he was a reformed character that could be relied on. And he had a perfect opportunity in early October with the appointment of bishops to five vacant sees. The appointments he made were not, as he would have once done, Arminians. They were all impeccably Calvinist. They were people, Nicholas said happily, of whom there is not the least suspicion of favouring the Popish party. Charles was learning to play to the gallery, and the policy began to deliver. Building a party was not just a pipe dream, it really could happen. And the new party began to acquire some new notches in its belt. That notch might come from the City of London. Since the start of the Bishops' Wars, the City Corporation had been firmly on the side of Parliament and seemed an increasingly close ally of reform, hand and glove, that sort of thing. But the annual elections for the mayor were coming up and the outgoing Puritan mayor hoped to hand over to the Puritan and pro-junto Thomas Soane, president of the Honourable Artillery Company, that hotbed of Puritans and presumably hotbed of future lovers of Warhammer in a few centuries' time. But the Royalists sense an opportunity because the thing about the City of London was that it was essentially about trade. Trade first and foremost. And uproar and mayhem is not good for trade. The merchants' brows were furrowed, poor things, were caught as they were in a pincer movement of poor continental demand due to the Thirty Years' War and falling trade due to local argy-bargy. It was not just the big boys like the Honourable Company of Cloth Workers or Fishmongers and so on who were finding things difficult. Some far less reputable groups were raising their voices very loudly. It is time to hear the voices of the Sisters of the Scabbard, ladies and gentlemen, as they join the mighty and deep river of history. The good sisters worked the back lanes and alleyways of Long Acre, just cheek by jowl to Bedford's Grand Covent Garden development. I'm going to leave it to your imagination to decode what trade the Sisters of the Scabbard were in, but just know that their ancient profession was struggling, and they were not being quiet about it. They were not taking it lying down, which was the problem. So, on the 28th of September, the electoral body of the Common Hall of London was in a riot of noise, catcalls and shouts. Up against Soame, darling of the radicals, was a much more traditional candidate, one Richard Gurney of the Clothmakers Guild, who'd made a bundle selling bundles, bundles of cloth, that is, to France and Italy. Now, he himself was on a bit of a political journey because he'd started in 1640 being very much part of the decision to refuse to offer a loan to the king. But he'd gradually turned and changed his mind as time went by and chaos grew. And as the time came for the election, everyone knew about his growing court sympathies. Well, the election was chaos. Time after time, the sheriff was forced to intervene to impose order. 
When it was finished, an excited member rushed out of the hall and wrote that Soam was defeated and his supporters overcome with hisses. Charles was delighted, especially because on his return to London in November, his new ally Gurney would stump up 4,000 quid for celebrations, no less. Gurney received the traditional reward for his brown-nosing, I mean for his selfless loyalty, a knighthood and a baronetcy. For Charles, of course, this was a wise investment. The streets of London were crucial. Controlling them could be the difference between success or failure, and having the mayor on his side could swing events his way because he controlled the London-trained bands. At this stage, news then came back from Edinburgh and it arrived on the collective desk of the Junto before anyone else knew so they could use it, because Hamden had sent a messenger from Edinburgh and he'd covered the six-day journey in just four days. So, Pym was able to stand up in the Commons on the 9th of October 1641 as the new session after the summer recess got underway, and he made an announcement. Listen up. There has been another attempted royal coup. First we had one here in England, now there has been one in Scotland, an incident carried out against our friends Argyle and the Covenanters. The news galvanised the Commons and brought waverers back to the reforming camp. Another example of the King's duplicity, Pym took full advantage. On the 20th of October, a new reform programme was started in Parliament in a highly charged atmosphere of a sense of crisis and danger. So it seems the timing could hardly have been better. A massive advantage for Pym and the Junto, a superb environment on which they could capitalise to further develop the King's corsetage. We are back to BAM, Bishop's Army Ministers. So the first bid was a proposal to exclude the bishops from the House of Lords and from other secular office. Giorgionto knew full well this was one topic where they could command complete support from the Commons. Such a policy would deliver not just one whammy, but two. It would convince those Scots that the Junto were reassuringly anti-Bish and remove a substantial block of royalist supporters from the Lords. But Pym found, to his horror, that the world had indeed changed because the Lords refused their assent. It seems the king was now more in tune with his lords than were the commons, and that for the lords also, bishops were non-negotiable. Now, for the moment, taking on the king about military control seemed well beyond the junto's reach, but even if they'd failed to persuade the lords to move on the issue of bishops, they felt confident of the third battleground, the choosing of ministers. To banish the prospect of arbitrary rule, they must ensure the king was surrounded by councillors who would respect the right of the people. So Pym introduced a proposal into Parliament that Parliament should have the right to veto any appointments of the king's ministers. This, as we heard earlier, was another of Charles's non-negotiables of his red lines. This was another test case of the strength of the reformers in the Commons. So it was that William Strode stood on behalf of the Junto, speaking, it was said, with great violence. All we have done this Parliament is nothing unless we have a negative voice in the place of great officers of the King and his councillors, by whom the King was held captive. Neatly put, 
Unless we can veto the king's ministers, all this could be in vain, swept away. And, you'll note, still carefully not blaming the king, by whom the king was held captive. Now, speaker after speaker stood to support the bill, prompted by the junto. The survival of reform was at stake. Without this bill, tyranny could be just round the corner. Don't think we're claiming any new rights here. All this had been done before. Pym argued they'd seen it all before in medieval times. They were simply reviving an ancient right. But this time, the reformers' chainsaw bit not through compliant wood, but into unyielding metal. The sparks and screeches of protest followed. Few bought the idea this was perfectly normal and an ancient right being revived. In fact, everyone recognised this was as revolutionary as the root and branch bill would have been. That the right to appoint the ministers of choice was a fundamental platform on which England's ancient monarchy had forever been based. The MPs who led the resistance included many of those who'd previously been thick with the cause of reform and stood with them shoulder to shoulder through the months. But when Edward Hyde stood as well, the air was tense. This was the man who'd called for Strafford's blood. Which way would he jump? Hyde delivered his verdict. The great officers of the crown were to be appointed by the king, this being an hereditary flower of the crown. From there, the debate slipped away and was lost. Nicholas watched with delight, and later he wrote excitedly to his king with his match report. So many in the commons appeared against this business, he crowed, and named those who had stood in the king's party as champions in the maintenance of your prerogative. Charles was once again to remember the name of Edward Hyde and his role in this, and he was cock-a-hoop. The proposal was diverted, it was watered down and watered down, until all the Commons would approve was a feeble petition to the King on the subject. I imagine in Whitehall Palace there was a room with the legend Evil Councillor Archive, organised by Century, in which this new petition would be filed. It could have been a big room. So the proposal had been defeated. Now to have trouble in the Lords was unfortunate, but to have trouble in the Commons seemed like carelessness, and it was a first in this Parliament. And that had come in the panic right after another apparent coup by the King. Charles was delighted and wrote to Nicholas and told him to prepare a list of ideas about he could, how he could reward those loyal MPs. He had built it, and they had indeed come. The Junto would have to think again. For now, Nicholas was eager to get his king back down from Scotland to build on this turnaround and put all this talk of reform to the dustbin of history where it belonged. The Junto would not give up, though. They would relaunch. And so Pym prepared a massive document detailing all the wrongs and tyrannies of the king, what the reformers and parliament had achieved to put that right, and what was now needed to happen to confirm and protect it a manifesto for Parliament, as it were. And on the 1st of November, the Grand Remonstrance was to be presented to the Commons. This would allow the Junto to regain their initiative. And so, on the 1st of November, Julie, the MPs filed it into St Stephen's Chapel, prepared for what many now expected to be a fractious, hard-fought argument over the rights of Parliament and the rights of the King. 
and whether further reform was needed to embed and protect the reform achieved already, or if they'd gone far enough now. That the king had done all that could be asked of him, normal business should now be resumed, away from the contention and the conflict. So they could all go home to their countries and get on with the politics that really mattered, the politics of the parish. Instead, once they'd crammed into St Stephen's, everything was interrupted. The debate was cancelled. And the Commons was presented with the sight of 17 privy councillors approaching the bar of the Commons and demanding that they must be heard. And they must be heard immediately, because they had news that would change everything. Instructions were sent out, and hurriedly, 17 chairs were found and brought forward so the councillors could address the House. What they had to say did indeed change everything. News had arrived late last night when an exhausted rider had appeared at the gates of Leicester House in the West End of London, demanding an immediate audience with the Lord Lieutenant of Ireland, the Earl of Leicester. The news the messenger brought was this. Ireland was in flames. Dublin Castle had been attacked. There were reports of massacres of Protestants and English rule hung by a thread. As you might expect, that managed to catch everyone's attention, and I hope yours. And next time, we will turn to Ireland and an event which might be one of the most momentous in the history of Britain and Ireland, and with the most long-lasting and tragic consequences. So that's something to look forward to then. Until then, everyone, thank you so much for listening. Thanks to all of you, especially those of you who are members, and for all your comments, reviews and so on. Good luck, and have a great week full of joy, fun, laughter and lardy cake. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. Hi, I'm Una Chaplin, and I'm the host of a new podcast called Hollywood Exiles. It tells the story of how my grandfather, Charlie Chaplin, and many others were caught up in a campaign to root out communism in Hollywood. It's a story of glamour and scandal and political intrigue and a battle for the soul of a nation. Hollywood Exiles from CBC Podcasts and the BBC World Service. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. <laughs>